Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's virtual regional dialogue for English-speaking Africa uh, on the topic of food and agricultural trade in the new policy environment. How can WTO members support economic recovery and resilience? Uh, my name is Jonathan Hepburn, Senior Policy Advisor at IISD, the International Institute for Sustainable Development, and I'll be moderating today's event. Um, our dialogue today is organized jointly by three organizations, IISD, uh, IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, and Academia 2063. It's the third in a series of four such events, and it follows events that we held on the 17th of November for French-speaking African countries at another event on the 23rd of November uh, for Latin America and the Caribbean. So the focus of our discussion today is going to be uh, to look at the issues that are facing African countries in the area of food and agricultural trade and markets in the run-up to the next ministerial conference of the World Trade Organization, the 12th Ministerial Conference, MC12, uh, as it's often called. And we want to focus in particular on recent challenges that have faced African countries uh, and more, um, global markets for food and agriculture more broadly, in particular, the pandemic of COVID-19, and look at the impacts that that has had on trade and on agriculture and on food security. We also want to look at the broader economic context. We want to look at questions like African regional integration and continental integration, questions such as the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And we want to look at the recent trade tensions between major economies, such as those between the US and China, and consider how those have affected producers and consumers in Africa. We hope also that participants will look at some of the other emerging challenges facing the region, climate change, and how the increased frequency and intensity of extreme weather events could affect uh, food and agricultural markets in Africa and beyond, and what that means for the achievement of public policy goals. The negotiations taking place at the World Trade Organization today are focused on seven outstanding areas. Firstly, domestic support, which is looking at talks on how farm subsidies can be disciplined. Secondly, a possible permanent solution to some the problems that some developing countries face when they're buying food for public stocks. Thirdly, access to markets. Fourthly, uh, whether countries can agree uh, a special safeguard mechanism to address temporary volume surges or price depressions. Fifthly, export competition, including various measures which are seen as similar to export subsidies. Sixthly, export restrictions, including the recent proposal to exempt uh, humanitarian food aid provided by the World Food Programme from these measures. And seventhly, and particularly important for many African countries, the burning question of cotton. So we're looking at the COVID-19 crisis, we're looking at other policy and market developments, and we hope that this will be an opportunity also to revisit some of the policy frameworks governing markets for trade and agriculture, and consider what governments can do differently to better support food security, rural livelihoods, and environmental sustainability. We'd like to hear from you, um, if you uh, would like to participate in the question and answer session that will follow the presenter's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the four panelists that we have with us today. We're very honored to have with us uh, four excellent speakers. Uh, Doa Abdel Motal, the senior counselor in w, the WTO's Division on Agriculture and Commodities. David Laborde, the senior research fellow at IFBRI. Elizabeth Nsimadala, the president of the Pan Africa Farmers Organization and the Eastern African Farmers Federation, EAFF. And also Elizabeth Nderitu, senior regional manager with Trademark East Africa. We're delighted to have you all with us. Thank you very much for taking the time from the schedules to join us for this discussion. 
So our first theme today is the question of how global markets for food and agriculture have been affected by the coronavirus pandemic and what this means for the region. I want to start asking, um, I want to start by asking a question of David Laborde. Uh, David, maybe you could tell us what do the COVID-related changes on global markets mean for food security and rural development in Africa? Thank you, Jonathan, and thanks for everyone who have organized this panel that is, I mean, so, so relevant and so important with the growing role of Africa on global food markets, both as an importer, but also as an exporter. And uh, this crisis that has impacted everyone everywhere has of course impacted the, the, the world food markets, I will say, uh, but in very different ways. Uh, the main story is a big shock in terms of, of demand, you know, uh, there is an economic crisis everywhere. So actually what we feel is the lack of capacity for some countries to pay for their imports or just the fact that consumers are uh, going away from, from some type of goods because we have entered this crisis with very good level of production coming from previous uh, year investment and, and the good weather overall in 2020. And therefore we don't have seen this, this supply uh, crunch. And most of the countries have also been very careful to not like in previous crises implement too much export restrictions. A few countries have, but overall, especially for staple, for grains, the world markets have been very resilient. The shipping system has adapted uh, very quickly and that was uh, fine. Now for some key African exports, in particular some cash crop like cashew uh, or uh, other commodity, the shrinking markets, the shrinking demand, including coming from China at the beginning of the years has destabilized them, prices have fallen and it was an issue for, for them. And also the trade of a high value product in particular uh, some horticulture product, you need coming from cut flowers. Um, and if people don't go away, people don't do the, the Valentine Day. Of course, earlier this year, there was already some problem in terms of demand of cut flowers. But the key thing is air transportation. And because we have the, seen this disruption in terms of tourism, so it's another type of, by the way, trade, uh, trade in services, but let's focus on, on food product. Uh, because there was no planes or less planes, the cost of uh, exporting um, high value product for, uh, from Africa to the rest of the world, in particular Europe, has increased. So you have seen this impact on a number of, of value chain, but overall the market have been very resilient. The agricultural sectors this year is one of the most resilient sector of, of any type of economic activity, maybe except e-commerce e and e-trading that has already been boosted. And maybe during this morning we will have Afternoon, or afternoon, depending where you are, we'll have opportunity to discuss, you know, how it means also the, the e-commerce for, for agricultural product and the role of Africa. But I will stop here. And that's the, uh, the main message. Markets have been over resilient, some values and distorted, but the main challenge is economic crisis, fall of demand, and of course, fall of income for many people. And of course, the poorest people initially are the most exposed to this type of crisis. Thank you very much, David. So basically it's a story of falling demand, hitting food uh, security through the impact it has on access to food, especially for poor consumers, um, and a differentiated impact on different types of markets, depending on whether it's staples or high value perishable products like cut flowers and horticultural products. Um, if I could now go to the next question, I'd like to ask Elizabeth Nderitu, how have markets in East Africa been affected by the pandemic? And what is the impact on supply chains? Elizabeth, Elizabeth you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you very much, David and Jonathan and everybody. Um, David has spoken already and alluded to the cost of exporting high value products from the region and the impact it has had on the economy. Um, in East Africa, we really depend, especially Kenya on horticultural exports. So that impact was really felt and we believe it will be felt even in the near future. And most of uh, our producers are small-scale farmers who are then contracted by large-scale exporters. So we know that is going to be felt across the country. So as far as supply chain disruptions in uh, cross-border trade in the East African region, 
Most of them were caused by the requirement to test logistics operators and especially drivers when they were crossing East African borders. So for example, if a driver was coming from Mombasa with cargo all the way to say Kigali, they had to stop at the Kenya-Uganda border to be retested again before pr proceeding along the main transport corridors in East Africa into the transit and the importing countries. So the impact on market was especially pronounced for commodities that were related to physical transportation on goods. And this also included, but to a smaller extent, agricultural produce. I don't know how many people are paying attention to East African corridors in the months of April, May, June, but there were instances whereby we had more than 30 kilometer stretches of tracks along East African borders for drivers waiting to be tested. And so there were several interventions by different agencies and my organization also supported in the development of driver, driver tracking application where now COVID-19 testing certificates were available online and could be verified by most trading agencies like the ministries of health, police and revenue authorities. And to some extent that has contributed to the reduction in delays at the borders. So you, you don't see that many tracks at the borders right now, maybe three or four kilometers down from 30 to 40 kilometers. But this has also been as a result of the ministries of health also decentralizing the testing so instead of being at the border waiting to test, now facilities have been deployed inland and other areas so that you, you, drivers don't have to wait for one point. And then you can also say because of visibility and IT, there is recogni recognition of uh, testing certificates because they are verified and you can see them online. So that has led to quite a bit of reduction in supply chain interruptions in the region. Thanks very much. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's that's very interesting. I mean, we're used to hearing about goods being tested and uh, customs checks on goods at borders as part of the, the discussion around trade. But here you're talking about drivers themselves being tested for coronavirus. These are health tests on the, the people transporting the goods. Thank you. Um, I'd like to go to Doha Abdelmotal next and ask uh, an, another question, which relates, I think, to some of the things that David touched upon very briefly in his earlier comments. Uh, Doha, the WTO has said that agricultural trade has been more resilient than other sectors during the pandemic. Do you expect this to continue to be the case? And if so, why? Thank you very much, um, Jonathan, and thank you to the organizers for inviting us, the WTO, to this important event. Um, indeed, uh, the WTO has said that um, agriculture has been the most resilient economic sector in this crisis, uh, and that's because of the, of the inel inelasticity of demand for food. In other words, demand for food cannot be postponed. However, within that picture, there are some nuances which David uh, pointed to. Uh, perishable foods have been far more affected than have other foods. So food that is moved by air has been far more affected than food that is, that, that is moved by sea. Um, and so we, we, we must take that into account. However, what I'd like to point out is that um, uh, the other sectors of world trade that have been seriously affected by this pandemic impact agricultural production. There has been a serious drop in industrial goods. Now, let's remember fertilizer is an industrial good. The world produces 190 million tons of fertilizers, um, of fertilizer per year, 40% of which enters international trade. Agriculture cannot do without fertilizer. The same for, for the farm machinery and the equipment that are required for agricultural production. The WTO has also said that services has been the, the most impacted sector by the COVID crisis. The, the drop in services trade has been tremendous and that's because uh, services trade is the sort of trade that has been most affected by the kinds of restrictions that have been put in place by governments, um, restrictions on the movement of people and so on. Let's also remember that services are key for agricultural production, for, transporta for the transportation of goods, for the movement of goods, for the retail and marketing services of goods, etc. So yes, agriculture has resisted, but uh, the drop in industrial goods and services will catch up with agriculture. Now, will 
the resilience of agriculture continue to hold to come to the second part of your question. I would say that we shouldn't take the resilience of the agricultural sector for granted. Um, there, we have seen many trade policy measures um, enacted in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis, whereas half of them have been trade opening measures, another half, unfortunately, have been trade closing measures. Uh, in fact, the uh, Committee on Agriculture held, uh, held a meeting recently in the WTO where members have grilled each other on all sorts of new trade policy measures enacted in the wake of the crisis, such as new border measures, testing, inspection requirements, new subsidies that have entered into force to support farmers, to support freight, etc. And, um, and the call has been for those measures to be uh, temporary, to be targeted, to be proportional, to be non-discriminatory, as per the calls of the G20. So um, uh, in short, uh, we must make sure that uh, global agricultural value chains continue to hold in this crisis. As we know, our food is produced in the world and not in a particular country anymore. Uh, processed foods are assembled today. And so uh, we have to work on keeping markets open and uh, cannot take the, uh, the, that, this resilience for granted. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Doha. And that's a very helpful reminder that we need to take this holistic approach to, to thinking about food and agricultural markets. Uh, you touched upon services and fertilizers, trade in industrial goods, manufactured goods, and, um, and David also alluded initially to, to services in, in, in the impact that, that, that the decline in tourism has had on food security in various countries. Elizabeth also spoke about the cross-border transportation services. So I think it's very good that we have that element in our discussion and not just be looking at trade in food and agricultural goods. Um, with that, I think we can move on to our second theme, which is about the tensions between major economies and how those have affected countries in the region and what these might mean for trade in food and agriculture. Uh, we have in mind here the, the tr trade tensions in particular between major economies outside the African continent, but which we know have had uh, impacts on agriculture within the region. Um, so my first question is to Elizabeth Nsimadala. Elizabeth, how have recent trade tensions affected producers in Africa? And can you tell us which products and producers have been most affected and how? The floor is yours. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan, and uh, to the organizers for recognizing farmers and inviting us to be part of today's dialogue. Uh, back to your question, um, I think in terms of uh, the trade tensions, the obvious answer is a yes. And um, when you look at uh, the International Monetary Fund uh, uh, statistics, they lowered African trade projection from 3.3% to 3.1%. And this was a result of the rising trade tensions. And they actually went ahead to warn against a possible drop from 1.5% uh, percent of Africa's GDP by 2021. Uh, the Africa Development Bank also estimated that the trade tension could cause a 2.5% reduction in GDP in most of the intense African countries' uh, resources. So what does this mean? And when you look at the facts, Africa depends heavily on China and US as their primary trading economies. Therefore, any tension on China or on the US affects Africa directly. And most important for noting is that we mainly export agricultural products in their raw form. And as a result of these tensions, there has been a decline in terms of exports in uh, fresh fish, for example. You've heard from Elizabeth, the hot culture, vegetables, fruits, uh, the beef and pork, milk and dairy products, maize, among others. And this is mostly due to lack of storage infrastructure. Because the shelf life of some of these uh, products is very short. So there's no any other option uh, since most of the um, 
sectors were locked down as the results of this COVID-19, for example, and, and of course the tensions uh, you know, around uh, the, most of these uh, economies. So there was a big shift, a big decline in terms of uh, trade in these um, products. So they left the smallholder farmers who are the major producers of most of these crops and most of these uh, enterprises affected leading to reduction in commodity prices, the foreign exchange also reduced, and of course the trade itself reduced. So the effect, when you look at this effect of the trade tension, it has not only affected uh, the producers, but also all the value chain actors. You heard from, um, from Elizabeth and other speakers of how uh, all the sectors have been affected, not only by COVID, but also by the trade, uh, you know, tensions. So the governments have also not been spared. Most of our economies, you know, they rely on foreign loans. So they have ongoing uh, challenges in terms of uh, servicing the foreign debts. And this has led to introduction of additional taxes, uh, like on agricultural inputs, fertilizer and pesticides, uh, fuel, when the mobile money taxes, of course, among many more other uh, taxes that have been introduced. And when you look at all these taxes, this is a double-edged effect on the already burdened agriculture sector. And of course, the big burden is borne uh, by the farmers who are double affected by most of these uh, taxes. But um, what I can say is that from the farmers, we believe that all is not lost. These tensions and such tensions should trigger uh, Africa to reorganize and internally boost the Africa continental free trade area to be able to facilitate a one intra-Africa market. And we believe that this market will reduce um, African countries' dependence on foreign investors, and it will create uh, an investment framework to allow them trade uh, on their own. Thank you, and over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's absolutely brilliant. A snapshot there of exactly what's going on and what it means for producers. Um, if I could turn now to Elizabeth Nderitu. Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you from TMEA's perspective, Trademark East Africa's perspective, what are the consequences that you have seen of the recent trade tensions between major economies for trade in food and agriculture? You have the floor. Thank you once again, Jonathan. Um, in my language, and actually in the national language and to some extent regional language of Swahili, we have a saying that when two buffaloes or two bulls fight, it is a grass that suffers. It is not the fighting animals. So even though Africa is not a direct target in the trade tensions between the major global economies, because most countries on the continent are not considered major global economies, countries on the continent are still being affected by the impact of these tensions. Tariff hikes have reportedly contributed to drops in the commodity prices due to dampened demand. Elizabeth Smadala and David also talked to this. And the United Nations World Economic uh, Prospects for 2020 and 2021 report also notes that the current environment of protracted tensions and high policy uncertainty, the global growth outlook has weakened significantly. So this has been attributed to weakened trade activity, subdued demand for commodities from the continent, and even more subdued domestic investment. So as you can see, any major slowdown in major economies because of trade tensions will likely have further negative impacts because of hindered exports from the continent and also reduced government revenues. And Elizabeth has said that due to reduced government revenues, there's more resorting to tax taxing inputs, taxing um, e-commerce, taxing financial transactions that are carried out over the mobile phones, if I can speak from the African, uh, Kenyan specific uh, perspective. So those are all impacts. And not to forget that all these commodities whose prices are reducing are very important to the national economies, um, such as coffee exports, tea exports, grain and livestock, and substantial production of this commodities is done by small scale farmers. So we can imagine the impact that uh, subdued prices usually has on household economies at that level. For example, in Kenya, 
tea is a major export and over 70% of national tea production is done by small scale farmers. Half a million people derive their livelihood from tea production. Similar numbers apply to horticultural exports. So when there are tensions that reduce demand and prices go low, any commodity price reductions due to trade tensions on major global economies has a very negative impact at the household level. That said, I would also agree with Elizabeth Madala that all is not lost. We have opportunities for increasing intra-African trade and re reducing our dependence on global markets for primary agricultural products and even raw materials. There are also other opportunities for bilateral agreements and bilateral negotiations and multilateral trading agreements between African countries and even the major trading economies themselves. For example, we do have the EU-EAC Economic Partnership Agreement. Uh, recently, the US and Kenya have started negotiating under the US-Kenya Trade Agreement. And even we cannot also forget the forum um, on China-Africa cooperation. So there are many opportunities that we, can allow, we cannot allow to slip by on the continent and between countries on the continent and regions on the continent and the major trading partners on the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Elizabeth. And that's a wonderful overview. And it's just, a, just your single example there about tea and the number of, of livelihoods dependent upon that single product, that single sector, half a million people. It's, it's really incredible when you think about the scale of what we're talking about. Um, so I'd like to just also remind anyone that may have joined this uh, discussion uh, a little bit later, uh, of something that I said at the beginning, which is that we would like you to participate. We'd like you to chip in with questions and uh, things that you'd like our panelists to respond to. So if you have questions, please submit them on ifbre.org, on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or uh, on Twitter by using the hashtag askifbre. Um, and we will try and get to those in the second part of the conversation. I think that brings us to the end of the second theme. And what I'd now like our panelists to do is to move on to the third theme, which is looking at this question of how trade policy can better support food security and environmental sustainability, um, especially in this new market and policy context, which we've just been talking about. So a question firstly for Elizabeth Nderitu. Elizabeth, can you tell us uh, in agriculture, to what extent can we expect that regional and continental integration can help African countries to improve food security and environmental sustainability? Thank you. Thanks very much, um, Jonathan, once again. So we can start by referring to the treaties and agreements establishing regional economic communities on the continent and even the African continental free trade area. So I believe this provide a framework for policy formulation that could be enhancing market access for agricultural produce across the continent. This will ensure flow of agricultural goods from regions and countries with food surpluses to regions that experience seasonal or chronic food shortages as a result of their climatic environments. I believe that this calls for data-driven policy formulation and implementation of these policies and for institutions to collaborate and share data. So research from think tanks on the continent and the regional economic communities is really vital to these processes. We do have specialist institutions like the Regional Strategic Analysis and Knowledge Support System. We support successful implementation of the CADAP um, program by providing policy relevant data. So that is just one example. And at the WTO, we have the Standards and Trade Development Facility which offers a tool that is able to support governments to develop decision-based criteria for investment in specifically SPS, that is food safety, animal health and plant health issues as they relate to trade. Some of the criteria could be enhanced food security and impact on the environment among others. So you do have opportunities to look at what investment do you make? What is the initial cost? What is the on-gain cost? And then invest on that depending on your policy or even to advise your policy. However, I believe that nothing can be done you know, individually by one rank 
or even by the CFTA alone, or even by just one ministry. We also need to look at other areas such as intermodal transport and physical connectivity of market, markets, digitization of trade processes, addressing non-tariff barriers to trade, ensuring that rules of origin do facilitate inter-African trade, and also other prerequisites to trade in agricultural goods such as standards and SPS measures are implemented effectively and efficiently. So this, I believe, calls for cooperation between ministries, departments, and agencies responsible for, for formulating policies beyond just agricultural production and trade to others such as financing, transport, public health, and others that may be relevant. And be, beyond the collaboration and cooperation between um, departments and agencies in government, we also need to involve stakeholders such as consumers, the civil society, and the private sector which is critical because this is where the implementation is and this is where the rubber hits or misses the road. So in short, there's data, there's collaboration internally and externally and also involvement of all stakeholders so that we can trade with one another and ensure food security and other goals such as environmental sustainability. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's a very comprehensive overview. Um, I'd like to ask a, a similar question of Elizabeth Nsimadala. Uh, Elizabeth, um, what can governments do differently to ensure that policies affecting trade and markets support food security and environmental sustainability, in particular from the perspective of producers, uh, from, from farmers and bearing in mind the particular needs of small farms? Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. I think, uh, first of all, our governments I can say must mean business. They must move from rhetoric to action. Quite often we've been doing a lot of talking with, uh, with less action. What I can say is that we have excellent policies in press in, in favor of the regional and continental integration. Uh, Elizabeth has um, alluded more on that. We have the Cardiff framework in press. And other, uh, uh, you know, policies that allow for integration at regional and at continental level. All these have been promoted and supported by our political leaders. They've signed uh, different treaties, but in reality, these have not been supported uh, through equivalent uh, resources and investments to be able to cause a meaningful and impactful change on the ground. So the political environment, uh, when you look at, at it uh, from the African perspective, it is coupled with uh, conflicts, with low levels of intra-regional trade due to poor infrastructure, uh, lack of effective transport and communication networks in terms of uh, the road connectivity, the railway network, uh, the communication in terms of telephone con connectivity and so on. And so it really makes it difficult to trade and move food within the continent itself. I can tell you that it might be very expensive, for example, to move uh, produce from southwestern Uganda, where I'm based to the capital city, than moving it from, for example, the capital city Kampala to, to Nairobi. So all these investments are needed in, in these areas so as to see a boost in trade and, um, and food security. Uh, our government also should put in place a mechanism to support the small scale sectors. We know um, over 80% of the African population are smallholder farmers. We have small and medium enterprises. These are largely responsible for significant production, for trade in the continent and for the services that we see uh, in the continent. And these are mainly operating as private sec sector actors they heavily involve themselves in the informal sector. But when you look at them, they are very dynamic, uh, informally, they are regionally integrated, and they only require just a small subsidy support with patient capital and infrastructure to professionalize uh, most of their businesses. So the African government should also support and protect producers and consumers. Uh, this should be done through public stockholding, uh, where our governments need to come on board to acquire and stock food for our own food security. There, need, there is need for price controls. You know, uh, most African countries are liberal economies. Uh, so everything is 
for to whom it may concern. So we need to see governments coming on board, stepping in to put in place, uh, you know, minimum, for example, minimum market prices to minimize exploitation of producers. But also there is need for a strengthened public-private partnerships to leverage on each other's strengths. We know the private sector is doing very well when it comes to trade. Government is also in charge of policies, but also we see um, uh, farmers, for example, civil society uh, actors and, 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 and other actors uh, having strength in their different fields. So we need to see that um, you know, um, ecosystem where all these actors come together so that uh, you know, each and everyone can leverage on each other's strengths. Thank you and over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of uh, our third session. Once again, a little reminder, if you have questions, please share them with us. Don't hesitate to post them on ifb.org, on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or uh, on Twitter using the hashtag AskIfbri. Um, so let's come to the final theme that we want to look at, which is this question of what can be done, what meaningful changes can be negotiated or pursued by governments uh, at the World Trade Organization, in, the, in particular in the run-up to the organization's next ministerial conference, the 12th ministerial conference. At the moment, we don't have a date for this conference. Uh, it's provisionally scheduled for next June. It's been postponed once because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and at the moment, nobody is exactly sure quite when that will take place. Nonetheless, uh, there are lots of topics on the, the WTO agenda. Many of them are directly relevant to the concerns of African countries. So let me go back, Elizabeth and Simadala, to you and ask what you think uh, on agricultural trade issues uh, farmers in Africa are hoping to see happen at the WTO in the run-up to MC12 the next ministerial conference, as well as afterwards. Elizabeth, the floor is yours. Yes, uh, again, thank you, uh, Jonathan. Um, I think first and foremost, it is to recognize and appreciate the role that international trade agreements under the World Trade Organization have played in promoting trade. Uh, and secondly, is also to recognize that after so many years, we have not yet achieved even an even trading ground. We are still operating as um, what let uh, Mwalimu Julius Nyelele, the former president of Tanzania said, that we are using the same rules to govern a duel between um, David, and by David he meant Africa, and Goliath, which meant the rest of the world, meaning we have yet to achieve fairness when it comes to Africa trading and competing with the rest of the world. So we really need to look at an even trading ground. And this is what we feel that the, uh, the, the coming um, uh, ministerial conference uh, will, will deliver to, to, to the farmers and to, to, to Africa. Uh, we would also like to see the MC12 uh, recommend unwavering support for the Africa continental free trade area. And of course, uh, allocate and put in place other investments supporting intra-Africa trade. Um, African trade in agriculture commodities in terms of value, when you look at it, is less than 5%. Yet when you look at it in terms of volumes, it's a complete contrast. So there's need for more affirmative action on issues of market access so that Africa can have more opportunities to trade in finished products. And uh, not only in Africa, but also in the international market. We need to see a duty-free, quota-free program in this direction. And it should be uh, developed you know, to support um, uh, agriculture trade in, in Africa. So uh, one of the biggest disincentives uh, of, of agricultural trade and to the growth of agriculture in terms of markets in Africa is the dumping of the processed products on our markets. For example, the cheap chicken that comes on our African markets. And this is as a result of export subsidies that favor exporting nations. 
And these products disrupt the local markets and they kill the local farming industry. So there should be more uh, stricter and stringent measures taken on countries and companies that deliberately misuse their production subsidies to distort the African markets. And uh, lastly, uh, all the aid provided to African countries for purposes of capacity building for trade should be strictly for that purpose. And funds allocated for enhancing agricultural trade should have emphasis on agro-processing and variation. Without strong domestic variation programs that support domestic markets and the Africa continental free trade area, then I can tell you African countries cannot compete and can never compete on the international market. Thank you and over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, that's fantastic. I'd love to come back to, to you on some of the things that you've raised, but I'm conscious of time. I'd also like to come back to some of our presenters to talk about exactly what's going on on poultry markets and so on. Uh, we know that there was an agreement at the 2015 WTO Ministerial Conference in Nairobi to put an end to export subsidies. Clearly, products continue to benefit from domestic subsidies, as you mentioned, Elizabeth, but it would be interesting to understand a bit better what's going on on African markets there and um, how that relates to government's policies. Um, but before we do that, um, Doha, I'd like to come to you. And uh, clearly, you have a privileged position at the WTO Secretariat in being able to see exactly what's going on in terms of the negotiations and the, the questions that governments are asking each other. You've already told us a little bit about that, but um, perhaps we can ask you, among the seven negotiating topics currently on the WTO agriculture agenda, which I mentioned at the beginning of the, the discussion today, where can we reasonably expect outcomes uh, to emerge for the next ministerial conference and which ones might form part of a post-ministerial conference work program? Over to you, uh, Doha. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, once again. Um, I think we can all agree that the COVID-19 crisis has taught us the value of the WTO. Um, it has been a stabilizing force in this crisis. Um, and we must remember that this crisis was accompanied with multiple other crises uh, for international trade. Um, there has been a background trade war taking place. There have been Brexit negotiations taking place. And so the role of the multilateral trading system has been absolutely key. We learned from the COVID crisis that we are capable of learning from crises. We have uh, learned from the 2008 food price crisis where one export restriction piled up uh, uh, on another and in the end uh, the world and all, all countries ended up worse off with less access to food. In the COVID-19 crisis, uh, uh, countries were careful to roll back any food export restrictions that were implemented at the beginning of the crisis. Um, now, what we've also learned from COVID-19, however, is that we need to make the trading system more robust so that we are less dependent on uh, political declarations at a time of crisis. Um, in the COVID-19 crisis, we were very dependent on messages being sent by the G20, by the heads of international organizations, calling upon policymakers to hold back and to not opt for beggar thy neighbor policies but to think of the of the global community as one. So we need to strengthen the WTO rulebook. Now, um, uh, in terms of MCT 12, uh, Jonathan, first I'd like to rec recall that the WTO is capable of achieving outcomes outside of the context of ministerial conferences and big rounds of trade negotiations. We needn't uh, await a ministerial conference to have a result. Um, examples of uh, big things that have been accomplished uh, in the multilateral trading system outside of the context of a round of trade negotiations is the trade facilitation agreement, which was very important for agriculture and for perishables. Accomplished in 2013, it entered into force in 2017. Uh, the complete elimination of agricultural export subsidies uh, accomplished in 2016, and so on. Now, in terms of MC12, as you said, we have no date, we have no venue yet for the conference, but nothing stops us from working on what we know 
are low-hanging fruit. Now, in terms of export restrictions, uh, clearly there are some areas within that, uh, under that broad umbrella that can be considered low-hanging fruits. For example, um, bringing greater transparency to food export restrictions, greater advance notice. Uh, as you know, one country's food export restriction may cut off the supply of food to, uh, to a food importing country that is absolutely dependent on imports for its food security. So greater advance notice may sound like a very small measure to take, but in fact, it can have a very big impact on a country whose food security is implicated. Uh, countries are also looking at uh, preventing food export restrictions from being applied to humanitarian food aid destined for the World Food Program. These could potentially be low-hanging fruit. In the area of market access, greater transparency, for example, um, uh, preventing applied tariffs from fluctuating when a shipment uh, of food is already en route, as we say in French, when it's already on its way to destination could be a measure with a significant impact for exporters. Um, uh, simplifying tariffs, um, ensuring that the world's nations express their tariffs in the same way and in the simplest possible way so that exporters have greater clarity as to what they, they will face at a border. Domestic support, which uh, is, the, is the language we use in the WTO for, uh, for internal subsidies in agriculture, is another big theme in this negotiation, but one of the most complex. Uh, there, there is talk of the need uh, to uh, perhaps establish a work program, a detailed work program uh, within the context of a ministerial conference to be pursued after the conference. One uh, approach being considered is to set a global target for internal subsidies, one big number uh, that would act as a ceiling for all internal subsidies put together and the work program that would be agreed at the ministerial conference would be one that would work its way backwards to that number looking at how to cut subsidies to get to that number so lots of options are there let me just conclude by saying that nothing is impossible um, uh, anything is possible if countries agree to to, to make it possible so uh, what we need is political will thank you jonathan Thanks, Doa. And I really love your optimism there. I think people, anyone working on development has to believe in what you said, which is that we're capable of learning from crises and learning from past mistakes. Um, so uh, with that, let's go to, to David for our last question in this fourth theme, which um, David, you are an international expert on the topics that we're talking about. You've co-authored a major book with Antoine Bouet on the WTO agriculture talks and what these mean for food security and development. Maybe you could tell us uh, very briefly what you would like to see happen at MC12, uh, the next ministerial conference uh, of the WTO and what it would mean for Africa. Thank you. Thank you. No, I think that's, as Doha said, it's very important to keep in mind that we can make things, you know, beyond the, the ministerial conference. And actually, we need to work a lot between the ministerial conference to be able to, to deliver. Now, there are these ceremonial aspects where people want to announce decision. And yes, we can expect, as in the past, a, a few things for, for Africa. But also, let's be honest, you know, globally, what trade means for food security and what WTO means for uh, food security you will see different opinion in different countries, okay? Everyone doesn't have the same interpretation or the same needs of the system. And this is true and maybe particularly true within Africa. You have more than 55 nations that have different needs, level of uh, capacity to produce their food or to process their food or to want to be linked to some internal, regional or external markets. So I just want you know, to, to, make, to not oversimplify what we mean by uh, what it means for Africa. Two things, uh, I think that clearly in the way that we are dealing with the dispute settlement and the uh, um, appellate body right now, there is still a lot of turmoil. Uh, there is also good case to, to improve the rules. And that's something that Africa should really care, take care of because first enforcing rules is very important. Right now, African countries have been totally, I will say disconnected from that. They have never complained and never and basically people have never complained about them. 
Sometimes they have followed some cases, but they have never used this uh, rule enforcing body to even protect their interest. And so that I think very key because when Africa uh, is going to continue to grow, they are even going to trade more and more among African countries. Some of this issue will be relevant for the ISCFTA and potentially some dispute settlement body of the ISCFTA. But as we have seen in the past, many, I would say bad policies are actually infringement of WTO rules and the dispute settlement body will be used also to, to deal with uh, protecting the interest of traders within Africa. So when what's happening on the appellate body and the dispute settlement is important for Africa and Africa should use it more and therefore should be really um, empowered in giving what type of institution African country needs to uh, make their case when their rights are, are violated. The other big, uh, I mean, topic is obviously the uh, domestic support discussion, subsidies, maybe simplification of, of the existing framework, clearly an update of what we have, the legacy of the Eureka round that basically ruled that have been defined 30 to 40 years ago and doesn't grasp the reality. And if we think about all the crises we have talked about today, from the trade tension to uh, the COVID-19, what we have seen is countries that have the financial means to protect their farmers uh, have done it. You know, for instance, the US on both cases, and in some cases for the trade war, they were directly part of the problem, but they have paid their farmers. So their farmers went through this crisis unarmed, but that's all of them to dump their product on world markets. So the more we can do on domestic support, the, the better uh, Africa will be. And he also make sure that the rules make sense from a, a development perspective. Uh, and once again, within Africa, you have countries that are very different level of development. So it's not like we want one, uh, one size fits all uh, for everything, but also making sure that the largest economy and the one that have a lot of financial means doesn't overuse the system to bias and make it unfair. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, so that brings us to the end of our first part of this discussion, which is the dialogue amongst the panelists and the questions that uh, I've been asking of them. Now we'd like to move to the question and answer session with uh, you, the audience. And we've already received some questions that have come in uh, via these different platforms and channels that we've made available. Um, so the first one I'd like to read out, it's been uh, asked by Omotuyule Ambali, uh, PhD. And Omotuyule is asking, I think one of the important factors mitigating against international trade is value addition. How can WTO members help businesses and organizations to meet the trade regulations and standards in order to increase international acceptance? Um, I think this is a really interesting question because not that long ago we had um, a dialogue with French speaking African countries, very similar to the one we have today. And this was a theme that emerged right through the whole discussion by all the panelists and throughout the, the exchange that we had. So um, uh, let me start off with Elizabeth uh, Insimadala and ask you, Elizabeth, if you could provide a reflection on this. I know that you've mentioned it in your comments already, but um, would you like to pick up on that and expand it a little bit? Uh, this question of value addition and what it means, but perhaps particularly from the perspective of producers, what could be done in that area? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Um, okay, I'll give my perspective and I think uh, I expect maybe more, uh, more beefing from, um, from the WTO uh, representatives. But um, in terms of, uh, Value addition. I, I think uh, if we are to grow uh, the African agriculture, everyone should be thinking about agro-processing and, and value addition. Like I mentioned, um, globally, our value on the international market is about 5%. But when you look at the volumes of what is produced in Africa, you can't imagine. So um, what we see as, or what we feel should be done from the farmer's perspective is that there is a really need for more affirmative action. And what does this 
affirmative action entail? It's the investment in, the, in, 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 in value chain development from farm to fork um, aspect should be implemented. And we need to build um, an ecosystem of the different actors who can support this kind of value chain development. We should not only look at um, the export end or the agro-processing end, but we should move uh, further to see uh, where uh, whatever is being served is being produced and how it is produced. Right from the soil, starting with what do the soils need, the right fertilizer, the right seed, and then moving along to the services, what does the, the farmers need in terms of services? We need to produce all year round, but most of the African farmers depend on rain-fed agriculture. So we need to see improvement in the irrigation infrastructure. We need to see um, improvement in mechanization. Then also when it comes now to the uh, real, um, to the real um, agro-processing bit, we need to see investments. People need to understand the standards. They need to understand, um, they need to have investments, the machinery, the capacity building on what is needed so that, you know, it is um, a full menu uh, that farmers can deliver on, on international markets. So variation um, should not be looked at as just a standalone, but it should be looked at in a holistic approach where we are looking at the entire uh, production chain right from the farm to the fork. Thank you and over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, David, I was wondering if you would like to come in next on this question. Do you have a particular, any particular thoughts that you can help guide the conversation on this topic with? Thank you. Yes, uh, I think that first, you know, globally on some market, there is still some tariff escalation and we still have this problem, but Africa for a long time had access to the European markets without any tariff escalation. Most of the African countries get the duty-free quota free initiative. So we know that it's not just about market access. Uh, the capacity to meet standard is one issue, but more generally, it's also the capacity to do this processing. And if you discuss with a lot of operators in African countries, in particular for the least developed African countries, when you ask them what is the problem to develop their businesses, they will say it's not the standard, it's not you know the tariff, it's I want access to electricity, you know, I want access to cold storage. If I cannot do it at a relatively low cost locally, there is no way I can be too much really bit sophisticated. Now, there is a big up and having a strong signal, meaning that we have seen very few countries in the world that were able to do this processing without having a domestic markets, also to sell their goods, to learn about the processing thing. So a purely export-oriented processing industry is very scarce. And let's be honest, for a long time, we didn't have a large domestic market in Africa. We didn't have this middle class of urban consumer in Africa that are aiming for more processed food. No, we have it. Just keep in mind that it's only in 2015 that we have seen in Africa and in Côte d'Ivoire, a, a chocolate factory to produce chocolate products for African consumers. And just thinking that, you know, you will do all the processing just to meet uh, European needs was, especially when you need sugar, dairy, and things like this, was not actually credible. Now we have this big structural change that has taken place in Africa over the last 20 years in particular. We have this urbanization. We have this middle class that are going to be uh, a domestic and regional market, and that will help also to trigger this investment. So I'm stopping here, but I want to, to raise this aspect. Thank you very much, David. Um, Elizabeth and Deritu, can we ask you this, this question about value addition? What does TMEA uh, think about this? Do you have uh, some reflections uh, also on these questions of standards and things that David raised and which were also part of the questioner's original uh, question? Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, we do have departments in Trademark East Africa that cater to value addition. As you may know, I work on the quality infrastructure and standards department. So that is just one aspect of value addition. We do also have an entire department of business competitiveness that works completely with the private sector on logistics, on competitiveness of individual firms and uh, business member organizations. So we do quite a bit on, of interventions with that. We do partner a lot uh, with business member organizations 
in East Africa mostly, although we are working now beyond the East African community. We do work with the East African Business Council and at the national level, we do work with manufacturer association, with um, um, private sector associations. So we do have many interventions that are aimed at helping businesses to address their competitiveness issues, including in value addition. Our standards and SPS work with the private sector is geared mostly towards compliance. So we do give grants for training for uh, businesses to be able to, to comply with market requirements for exports and even for local markets. So this is an area we are very passionate about, value addition and competitiveness. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Uh, Doa, I know that some of these issues have been on the WTO agenda for a very long time in the form of discussions around tariff escalation and even potentially some of the issues around uh, export restrictions that you alluded to earlier. Um, do you have any particular reflections, uh, also bearing in mind what David said about the, 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 the duty-free quota-free access that's been provided to many countries uh, in Africa for, for markets elsewhere? Um, from a WTO perspective, can you, can you offer some comments in answer to that question? Thank you. Um, thank you very much, um, Jonathan. So the question uh, I believe was on the assistance that we give to countries to allow them to become part of the value addition. So uh, as you mentioned, Jonathan, there are the ongoing negotiations, uh, which will improve issues such as tariff escalation, et cetera, and that will help countries uh, climb the value chain. But in addition to that, we have a number of technical assistance programs in the WTO that help countries with the sorts of um, issues raised in the question. We have a standards and trade development facility designed to support developing countries meet uh, food standards. Um, and my colleague uh, Melvin Spray is, um, is the head of the standards and trade development facility. And I'm sure that you know, he would appreciate getting a call from anybody watching this webinar who, who needs assistance and or who wants to discuss those sorts of issues. We also have a, a, an aid for trade program that uh, channels assistance towards these sorts of concerns. We also have a lot of assistance that's delivered under the framework of the WTO sanitary and phytosanitary measures agreement and agreement on technical barriers to trade. So uh, a range of programs are out there to assist you. So please do reach out to the WTO. Thank you very much, Doa. Um, I'm conscious of time, but I'd like to give everybody an opportunity to respond uh, with a last sort of a 30 second summary of the key takeaway messages that you would like. Um, so, Maybe I can go around and ask uh, Elizabeth and Simadala to, to kick off with just a short summary of what you would like people listening to this exchange to take home with them today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I think uh, my, my key message to everyone is that um, uh, we all need to be responsible. It's not. Um, someone is responsibility, but it is everyone's responsibility to make sure that uh, we increase production and we increase trade on African continent. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, that's great. Um, David, maybe we can come to you next. In a nutshell, what, what would be your take home message from the exchange we've had today on trade, food security and agriculture? Africa is going to continue to expand its role in international and regional markets. The more it is doing it, the more relying on existing rules will be relevant for the African countries, traders and farmers. And therefore their involvement in the WTO discussion and in the reform of the WTO is even more uh, important than ever. Thank you, David, that's brilliant. Um, Elizabeth and Deritu. Perhaps I can ask you as well to, to give us your, your 30 second summary of what you would like people to take home with them after this call. Thank you, Jonathan. I would conclude by saying that data-driven research and policy formulation is key. And this will involve um, all stakeholders from academia, government agencies, and the private sector and consumers. And I'm glad that this uh, 
This panel here seems to be representative of stakeholders, and I'm very glad that Elizabeth is here representing the farmers. This is the face of what we need to see. And we also need to take advantages, advantage of the opportunities available, uh, technical cooperation, technical assistance with the WTO and others. So there are opportunities for growth across the continent and with other partners around the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Doha, you have the last word. Um, thank you, Jonathan. We in the WTO are very much looking forward to deep African integration through the uh, newly concluded African Continental Free Trade Agreement and believe that it will be a very important stepping stone towards stronger uh, integration by Africa into the multilateral trading system. So, um, so we hope that th those efforts will proceed and that they will, um, and that they will deliver. Thank you. Thank you, Doha, and thank you to all of our panelists. I think we've had a very rich exchange today, uh, coupled with the discussion that we had with the French-speaking participants uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I think we're building up a, 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 a detailed picture of some of the challenges uh, that are facing policymakers in Africa and also other stakeholders, as was alluded to just now. Um, this is not the end of the conversation. If anything, it's the beginning or a staging post uh, along the wayside and we look forward to remaining in contact with you all and uh, of course would be delighted to invite you to our next um, IFBRI ISD dialogue which is taking place uh, for South Asia on the 17th of December. Um, so I'd like to thank you on behalf of all the organizers and um, I'm very grateful to everybody who's joined the, the call today for taking the time to do so. Thank you to all our panelists. Thank you to all the participants. Uh, have a good uh, rest of the afternoon or evening, wherever you are. And uh, we hope to stay in touch with you for our follow-on follow events. Thank you and goodbye.